no matter which application or which area of video compression and, and you know image compression, video compression that we're looking at, there is finally a growing awareness that without subjective testing, you cannot validate your results, you cannot be sure of your quality of the video because at least for now, it's still people watching the video at the end of the day. We don't have our machines watching it for us quite yet. The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. With me is my co-host, Mark Donegan. I'm really excited today because uh, we have uh, a guest that uh, was on our podcast before. Today, she's coming back for more. So I would like to welcome uh, Beamer's own VP of Technology, Tamar Shoham. Hi, Tamar. Welcome to the Video Insiders again. Welcome, Tamar. Hi, Dror. Hi, Mark. Great to be here again. And uh, today, we're going to uh, discuss uh, with Tamar a topic which has been uh, very hot lately. And this is a topic of uh, video quality measurement. And I think it's something that's uh, very important to anybody in, um, in video. And we have various ways to measure quality. We can look at the video or we can uh, compute some, um, uh, some formula that will tell us uh, how good that uh, video is. And uh, this is exactly what uh, we're going uh, to discuss today. We're going to discuss uh, objective quality measurement and subjective quality measurement. So um, let's start with the objective metrics. And uh, Tamar, can you give us uh, an overview of what is an objective metric and what are the most uh, common ones? Fortunately, the world of video compression has come a long way in the last decade or so. Um, it used to be very common to find video compression evaluated using only PSNR. So that's peak signal to no noise ratio, which basically is just looking at how much distortion, um, MSE mean square error there is between a reconstructed compressed video and the source. And while this is, you know, a very easy to compute metric and it does give some indication of the distortion introduced, its correlation with subjective or perceptive quality is very, very low. And even though uh, everybody knows that, um, most papers, I'd say up till about a decade ago, started with, you know, PSNR is a very bad metric, but it's what we have. So we're going to show our results on a PSNR scale. Um, That's right. So, I mean, everybody knew it, it wasn't a good way to do it, but it was sort of the only way available. Then more objective metrics started coming in. So there was SSIM, the structural similarity, which said, hey, you know, a picture isn't just a group of pixels. It has structures, and those are very important perceptually. So it attempts to measure um, the preservation of the structure as well as just the pixel-by-pixel -pixel difference. Um, then multi-scale MS SSIM came on the, on the arena, sorry. And, um, it said, well, it's not only the structure at a particular scale. We want to see how this behaves on different scales of the image. So that's multi-scale SSIM. And it's, it's actually not a bad metric for getting an impression of, you know, how distorted your video is. Netflix did a huge service to the industry when they developed and open-sourced their VMAF uh, metric a few years back. 
And this was a breakthrough for two reasons. The first is almost all the metrics used before to evaluate the quality of video were image metrics, and they were actually only measuring the the per image quality. We're not looking at a collection of images, we're looking at video. And while there were a few other attempts, there was um, Wave, I think, by, by Alan Bovik's group, and a few other um, attempts. So VMF basically takes several different uh Uh, objective metrics and combines them together and this combination is controlled by some machine learning process vmf was a, a measure that incorporated a temporal component from day one so that's one place that it really helped the second place is when you're Netflix you can do a lot of subjective testing to verify and uh, In, as part of the process of developing the metric and verifying it and calibrating it. And essentially the way they did it by using existing powerful metrics such as VIF um, and, and adding, as we said, a temporal component and additional components, but then fusing them all together, that's where the F from VMF comes from, um, fusing them together using a sophisticated machine learning neural network uh, uh, based model. So, so that was you know a, a big step forward and we now do have an objective measure that can tell us you know what the quality of the video is across a large spectrum of distortion. They did a large round of subjective testing and uh, graded the quality of distorted videos using actual users. And then they took the results of a few existing metrics. Um, some of them were shaped slightly for their needs and added a pretty simple temporal component. And then took for each distorted video the result of these metrics and essentially learned how to fuse them to get as close as possible to the subjective mosque score for that data. One of the questions I have, Tamar, is the Netflix library of content that they use to, to train VMAF, you know, entertainment-focused kind of, you know, major Hollywood movies, but, but there's things like live sports. Does that mean that VMAF works equally well, you know, with something like live sports, which... Um, I actually don't know, maybe they trained, you know, Netflix trained, but that's certainly not a part of their regular catalog. Or, or, or do we know if there's some content that, you know, maybe it needs some more training or, or, or it's not optimized for? Yeah, so, so Netflix have been very upfront about the fact that VMAF was developed for their purposes, using clips from their catalogs and using AVC encoding, Um, with the encoder that they commonly use to create these clips that were distorted and uh, evaluated subjectively and used to create the models, which means that uh, it may not apply as well across the board for all codecs, all configurations, um, and all types of content. That's something that we actually hope to discuss with Netflix um, in the immediate future and maybe work together to make VMAF even better for the entire industry. Another issue with VMAF, and it's interesting that you know that you mentioned live and sports, is that its computational complexity is very high. If you're Netflix and you're doing offline optimization and you've got all the compute power that you need, 
that's that's not a limitation it's not a consideration and it's fine but if you want to somehow have a more um, live feedback on your quality or be able to optimize and evaluate your quality with reasonable compute power um, vmaf is going to pose a bit of a problem in in that respect in any case um, these are all objective metrics and as i said you know they go from the bottom of the scale in both performance required to compute them and reliability or correlation with subjective opinions and up to VMAF, which is probably today top of the scale um, for a correlation with subjective quality, but is also very heavy to compute. But all of these metrics have one thing in common, unfortunately. They're a number. They measure distortion. They're not a subjective estimation or evaluation of perceptual quality. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah. So I recently had the pleasure of hearing a very interesting PhD dissertation by Yochai Blau down, uh, down at the Technion under the supervision of Professor Tomer Michaeli. And the, the title of his work is the Perception Distortion Trade-Off. And what he shows there is he shows both experimentally with um, two sets of extensive experiments that they performed and mathematically using modeling of um, perceptual uh, indication of quality and, and statistical representations for that versus the, the mathematical model of various distortion metrics. And he shows in that work that it's sort of mutually exclusive. So if you're optimizing your solution, specifically, for example, a neural net-based image processing solution, if you're optimizing it for distortion, you're going to have a less acceptable perceptual result. And if you're optimizing for perception, you're inherently going to have to slightly increase the distortion that you introduce. And there is like a convex hull curve, which finds this trade-off. So mathematical distortion, you know, A minus B, no matter how sophisticated your distance metric is, is inherently um, opposing in some ways to perception because our HVS, our human visual system, is so sophisticated and does so much mathematical operation on the data that the distance between the points or some transform or wavelet done on these points can never fully represent what our human visual system does to analyze it. And, and that's, I mean, a fascinating work. I, I think it's the first time that it's been proven mathematically that this convex hull exists and there is a bound to how well you're going to do perceptually if you're optimizing for distortion and vice versa. And I think we also see this in, uh, in, in video compression, for example, in, in the open source X264 codec and also other codecs, you can tune the codec to give you better PSNR results or better SSIM results. You can use the tune PSNR or tune SSIM flag to, uh, um, uh, to actually optimize or um, configure the encoder uh, to make decisions which maximize those objective metrics. Uh, but it is well known that when you use those flags, subjective quality suffering. Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and continuing with that, X264 and most other codecs generally have a, a psi or a psychovisual rate distortion mode 
And as you said, it's well known that if you're going to turn that on, you're going to drop in your PSNR and your objective metrics. So, right. so it's something that has been known. You know what? The reason I, I, I'm, I'm very vocal about this work at the Technion is it's the first time I'm aware of that it's been proven mathematically that there's like a real model to back it up. Mm. And I think that's very exciting because it's something, you know, we've known for a while and, and now it's actually being proven. Mm -hmm. So we've known it, but now we know why. For, for the nerds among us, we can prove that it's, it's even mathematical. It's not just a known fact. This is coming up everywhere and there's growing awareness that, you know, the, objective metrics and perception are not necessarily well correlated. But I think in the last month, I've probably heard it more times than I've heard it in the five years before that. It's like there's really an awareness just uh, uh, the other day when, when Google was presenting Stadia, um, Caleb, one of the, the leads on the Stadia project at Google, specifically said that, you know, they were testing quality and they were doing subjective testing and they had some modifications that every single synthetic or objective measure they, they tried to test said there was no difference. And yet every single player could see the difference in quality. Mm, wow. No matter which application or which area of video compression and, and, you know, image compression, video compression that we're looking at, there is finally a growing awareness that without subjective testing, you cannot validate your results. You cannot be sure of your quality of the video because at least for now, it's still people watching the video at the end of the day. We don't have our machines watching it for us quite yet. And, and Tamar, I think this would be a good, uh, Uh, points to discuss how um, user testing is done, subjective testing, but actually it's it's user opinion testing is done. I know there are some um, there are some uh, um, uh, standards for that. Right. So I, I think one of the reasons we're seeing more acceptance of subjective testing in in recent years is that uh, originally there were quite strict standards about how to perform, a subjective testing or visual testing of video. And it started with the standard or the recommendation by ITU, which is BT500, which is the, the gold basis for all of this. And it defines very strict viewing conditions, including the luminance of the display, maximum observation angle, the background chromaticity. So you have to do these evaluations against a wall that's painted gray in a specific shade of gray. You need specific room illumination, monitor resolution, monitor contrast. So it was like, if you wanted to really comply with the subjective test, testing of the standard, there was so much overhead and it was so expensive that, that although there were companies, you know, that specialized in offering these services, it wasn't something that a video coding developer would say, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to test now and see what the subjective opinion or what the subjective video quality of my video is. And I think two things happened that helped this move along. One is that more standards came out, which or more recommendations, which isn't always a good thing. But in this case, the, the newer um, documents were less normative, less constraining, and um, allowed to do easier user subjective testing. And in parallel, I think people uh, started to realize that, okay, it doesn't have to be 
all or nothing, okay? If I'm not going to do a rigorous BT500 testing, that doesn't mean I don't want to collect subjective opinions about what my video looks like and that I won't be able to learn and evolve from that. At Beamer, we have a very convenient tool, which we, Beamer View, which allows to compare two videos side by side, playback in sync, and, and really get a feel for how the two videos compare. So while the older metrics were very, very rigorous in their conditions, and it was very difficult to do testing, um, subjective testing, and confirm with these standards, at some point, we all started realizing that it doesn't have to be black and white. It doesn't have to be either you're doing BT500 subjective testing by all those definitions, or you know, you're just not doing any subjective testing. And using our tool, Beamer View, which I presume many of you in the industry use, um, we often compare videos side by side and try to form a subjective opinion of, you know, comparing two video coding and configurations or checking our perceptually optimized video to make sure it's perceptually identical to the source, etc. And then the idea came along saying, okay, you know, what if we took this beam review tool and added a bit of API and some backend and made this into a subjective test that was trivial for an average user to do in their own time on their own computer. Okay, because if it's really easy and you're just looking at two videos playing back side by side and someone else is taking care of opening the files and doing the blind testing so you don't know which video is on, is on which side and you just have to, you know, press a button and say, oh, A looks better, the left looks better or the, the left looks worse, that makes the testing process very, very easy to do. So at this point, we developed what we nicknamed Vista. Vista basically takes Beam Review, which is a side-by-side -side video viewer, and it corresponds with a backend that says, okay, these are the files I want to compare. And the user just has to look at it and say, hmm, I don't know yet, replay. Hmm, yeah, A definitely, you know, the left definitely looks worse. So I'm going to press that button. And then you get fed the next pair. So you're making this visual side-by-side -side comparison really, really easy to do. And that was the first step to making large-scale subjective testing a reality that we could actually use. And if before, you know, oh, gee, I've got two configurations and I want to know which looks better, you know, you had to go and... and pay a company to do BT500 testing and get results two weeks down. Well, now at least we had a tool that we could use internally in the company, get a few of our colleagues together and say, okay, you know, run this test session. Let me know what you think. And while it's true that this wasn't scaling yet, you know, so we would collect five or 10 opinions over our set of 10 or 20 clips that we were testing, we could always complete this evaluation with objective measures. But no matter how many objective measures you measure, okay, you're always going to get, for example, going back to the example we mentioned before, if you're turning on Psi R&D, you can run a thousand tests. PSNR is going to be lower. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's and the, the problem, I mean, the, the advantage of objective metrics is that they can scale infinitely, right? You can run thousands of servers on AWS that would just compute compute uh, objective metrics all day 
but they're not very accurate. They don't reflect real user opinions. And on the other hand, if you want to run subjective testing or user testing at scale, you have a problem because either it costs very much, you need to go to those dedicated uh, uh, labs, or if you do it internally, you know, with a few people in the company, um, it's not a, a large enough sample. And another problem with doing it with your colleagues is that they are not average users. Most of them are either golden eyes or after working for a few years in a video company, they become golden eyes. And you want people that uh, don't uh, just compare videos uh, all day, people who are really average users. Exactly. So so you highlighted on, on the exact three problems that we set out to then solve. So we have this tool that, you know, allowed for very easy comparison of video, but how are we going to scale it? How are we going to uh, be able to do that cheaply? And how would we get average an average user? Because average users are very slippery beings. Even someone that is an average user today, after they've watched hours and hours and days of video comparisons, they start to pick up on the nuances between the, the compressed or the processed video and the input. And, and then they're broken. They're not an average user anymore. But at some point, you just want to know, okay, what will the average user think? So we took this Vista. And, you know, how do you solve today a problem of I need lots of average user crowdsourcing? And we specifically went with Mechanical Turk, which gives you access to practically an endless supply of average users. Amazon Mechanical Turk, if, if somebody doesn't know this uh, platform, it's basically in the same way that you can launch up uh, computer servers on the internet, you can launch um, actual users, right? You can set up a task and, and people, real people from all over the world can bid on this task and perform it for you. Yeah, and, and it's really amazing to see the feedback we get from some of these users. Um, because there are all kinds of tasks on Amazon Mechanical Turk, and some of them, you know, might not be as entertaining. Here, we're just paying people to look at videos and express an opinion. So we also try where possible, where we have control over the content selected, to choose videos that, you know, are visually pleasing or interesting. And, and people tend to really enjoy these tasks and, and give quite good feedback on, you know, cool. And we, we also have a, a problem with repeat um, users or workers that want to do our tasks again and again. And it's actually interesting to watch the curve of how they become more and more professional and can detect more and more um, mild artifacts as they repeat the process. So we're actually adding now some screening process that, you know, to understand if we're looking at a user who has uh, very perceptive opinions or if they are still an average user. But we do need to, to verify our users. So we, because, I mean, this is Mechanical Turk. So, you know, how do you know if the user is doing the test uh, thoroughly or if they're just choosing randomly? Um, they have they have to go through the entire process of the test. So they have to play the videos at least once. But, you know, what if they're just choosing randomly or have even managed to configure some bot to take this test for them? Automate it, yeah. Yeah, so we prevent that by um, inter dispersing user validation tests where we th these are sort of like control questions 
where we know there is a visible degradation on one of the sides, but it's not obvious or, you know, something that PSNR would pick up on. And only users that get those answers right will be included in, in the pool and only their answers will be incorporated. So, you know, what we do is we launch these hits, which is the name of a, a task on Amazon Mechanical Turk, and people um, register, do the hits, complete them, get paid, and we start collecting statistics. So first, we weed out any uh, sets where either there were problems with the application and they didn't complete, or they just chose not to complete, or they didn't answer the user validation questions correctly. And then we have our set for statistical analysis. And then we can start looking at it and collecting the information and collecting the opinions and very cheaply, very quickly get a reliable subjective indication of what the average user thought of our pairs of videos. This is really interesting, Tamar. I'm, I'm wondering, do we have some data on how, how this does correlate this average user, these average user test results, do, do they correlate pretty close to what a, a and I'll put in air quotes, a, a golden eye, you know, would also um, pick up on? I mean, you did mention that some of these people have become quite proficient, so they're almost becoming trained <laughs> just through completing these, these tasks. But, um, you know, I'm curious if someone is listening and maybe they're saying, okay, this sounds really interesting, but my requirements are, um, you know, for someone who maybe fits more of a golden eye profile, are we finding that these quote unquote average users are actually the results line up pretty closely to what a golden eye might see? Or? So, so it, it, it depends on the question you're posing. So when we start a, a, a round like this of testing, the first thing you need to do um, is pose a question that mm -hmm. you want to answer. For example, I have configuration A of the encoder and mm -hmm. configuration B. Configuration B is a bit faster, okay, but I want to make sure it doesn't compromise perceptual sure. quality, okay? So that's one type of question. And in that type of question, what you're trying to verify is, are the videos in set A perceptually equivalent to the videos in set B? And in that case, okay, you may not want the opinion of a golden eye, because even if a golden eye can see the difference, you might be better off as a streaming content provider to go with a faster encode that 95% of your viewers won't be able to distinguish between them. So, so sometimes you really don't want to know what the golden eye thinks. You want to know what the average viewer is going to do. But we actually can control the level of, um, I guess, how professional or how what shade of gold our users are. And the way we can do that is by changing the level of degradation in the user validation pairs. So if we have a test where we really only want to include results from people who have very uh, high sensitivity to degradation in video, we can use user validation pairs where the degradation is subtle. 
And if they pick up on all of those user validation pairs, then we know that the opinion that they're offering us, you know, is valid. Uh, I need to emphasize, maybe I didn't make it clear, these user validation are randomly inserted along the test session. The user has no idea that there is anything special about these pairs. Do we know of any other solution that works like this? Have, have you come across anything? So... We've come across um, another uh, similar solution. It's called Subjectify.us. It's coming out of MSU, Moscow State mm -hmm. University. And I presume everyone in the field, you know, has heard of the MSU video comparison yes. uh, reports that, that they give out annually to compare uh, different implementations of video codecs. And it seems that they went through the same uh, path that we did, saying, okay, you know, we've got metrics, but we really need subjective opinions. And they have a solution that is a, a, actually a, a, a service that you can um, apply to and pay for, where you give them your images or a video that you want to compare, and they perform a similar kind of test for you. In our solution, we, we um, have many components that are specific to the kind of questions that we want to answer that might be a bit different. But it's actually very encouraging to see similar solutions coming out of other uh, institutions or companies, because, you know, it means that this understanding is finally dawning on everyone that A, you do not have to do BT500 compliant testing to get interesting subjective feedback on what you do. B, this should be incorporated as part of codec development, codec optimization, um, and, and, you know, we're not at the days where you can publish a paper and say, I brought the PSNR down and therefore it is by definition good. No, it has to look good as well. And, and I think uh, the MSU in the latest report, I'm not sure about the previous ones, they have two reports comparing codecs. One of them is with objective metrics and one of them with subjective. So I guess they developed this external tool, subjectify.us, um, First, uh, internally, so they can use it when comparing uh, uh, the, the codex and the test they do, and then they decided to uh, to make it available uh, to the industry as well. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, it, I I don't see it as competition at all. You know, I see it as synergy of all of us figuring out how to work correctly. You know, in this field of video compression, video streaming. And a recognition that, sure, we want to make better and better objective metrics or numerical metrics because that's an indispensable tool, but it can never be the only ruler that we measure by. It's, it's just not enough. You need the subjective element. And the more, you know, solutions out there to do this, I, I think it's great for the, for the video streaming community. What if somebody wanted to build their own? system because this isn't a commercial offer um although we've had many many of our customers <laughs> uh suggest that we should offer it that way but uh, at, at this time you know we're we're not planning to do that um so how how would someone get started you know if they listen and say wow that's a brilliant idea you know mechanical turk and but how would i build this okay so so i think the answer is in two parts um the the important part, if you're going to do video comparison, 
is the player and the client. And, and that's something that if you're starting from scratch is going to be a bit challenging because over the years we've invested a lot of effort in our Beamer View player. Um, and you know, there aren't a lot of equivalent tools like that. You need a very reliable client that can accurately show the video frames side by side in motion, you know, if that's what you're testing frame synchronized and aligned. And I mean, we, we originally did our first round of subjective testing, which actually was BT 500 compliant, as in we did it in a facility that, um, uh, had all the, the required uh, gray painted wall and uh, uh, calibrated monitors. Yeah. And, and we did that for images and building a client for that, that was for our J Beamer's JPEG mini product, building a client that compares two images is quite easy and straightforward. Okay. But building a client that reliably displays side by side video in synchronized playback is, is, might be the biggest obstacle to, you know, some company saying, that's cool, I want to do this. Then you have the second part, which is, you know, the back end, creating the test sets. There's, there, we, we put a fair bit of thought into how to create test sets that, you know, we can really rule out unreliable users easily and get good coverage over the video comparisons that we want to make um, to be able to collect reliable statistics. So, so that's like a, a coding task. But the point is, there's logic that has to be built around that, and and you have to really put thought into, you know, how you are going to um, either wait or screen out someone's result. Definitely, definitely, and and then you get, I mean, so you have the part of you know having a client, you have the design of the test sets on the back end, and the part that's, um, you know. Uh, building these test sets so that you get a good result. And then you have the third part, which is collecting all the data and doing a, a, you know, making sense of it, doing a statistical analysis, understanding, you know, what the confidence intervals are for the results that you collected. Um, if maybe you need to collect more results in order to be happy with, uh, with your confidence level. And so, so there are, you know, elements here. Some of them are, are design and, uh, understanding, you know, how to build it. Uh, some of them are coding challenges. And then you have the client, which, you know, you need to create. So it's it's not a, a trivial thing to build from scratch, given the components that we had and the understanding that we had, it, it was quite, quite doable with reasonable investment. And, you know, now we're reaping the benefits. And, and it's really amazing. Uh, um, you know, for me, for, for each time we, we want to to test something or, or to uh, to check some of our codec parameters, which one is better, or compare two versions of an encoder, or etc. You know, you can launch this test, and and uh, and basically overnight. I mean, the next morning you can come in and you have 100, 200 user opinions, whatever your budget is, um, uh, averaged that uh, give you uh, an answer, give you a real answer based on user opinions, which one is better. It's an invaluable tool. So literally, if before, you know, we would be able to look at two or three clips and say, mm, yeah, I think this is a good algorithm. And, you know, this makes it look better. Uh, now, as you said, overnight, you can collect data on dozens of clips over dozens of users and, and get an opinion and really integrate it into your development cycle. So it, it really is uh, very, very useful. 
And, you know, there's an application that comes to mind. Um, curious if, if we have used the tool for this or, or we know someone who has. Um, and that is for determining optimal ABR ladders. And uh, I'm just curious, is that an application for Vista? So, I mean, as I said before, Vista, basically, it's a matter of selecting your question before you start designing your test. And what we have built over Vista, and, and maybe haven't mentioned yet, we call it Auto Vista, says that, okay, if I have a question, okay, I can go from question to answer, basically by, you know, pulling the big lever on the machine, because we have a fully automated system that says, this is the encoder I want to test with this configuration. Okay, that's A. Um, the second encoder or configuration or something I want to test is B. You know, take these configuration files, take these are the inputs I want to work on, and do the rest. Okay, and we, we it will set up um, EC2 instances on Amazon AWS and perform the encodes and create the pairs and send that to the backend and create the test sessions and start a launch a round of testing and enable you know access to the database to collect the results. So with that, you can basically it's just about posing the question. So if the question you're answer you want to answer is I have, you know, I can either get this layer or I can get that layer, you know, which of them looks better, then yes, you can use Vista to, you know, create a set that corresponds to one ABR ladder, create a set that corresponds to another, and you would need to build the pairs correctly, okay, for this comparison, what you consider a pair. But, but that's, again, just in the technicalities. Basically, for any task that says, I want to compare, does pair set A look like set B? Or does set A look better than set B? Okay, those are the two kind of questions that we can answer. And, um, you know, we've, we've invested a fair bit of effort in making it as easy to use as possible so that it's practical to use it really in answering our development questions. Well, I think we just um, exposed to the entire industry what our secret weapon is. You know better than that, Mark. It's just one of our secret weapons. And, um, you know, I think we should give you an opportunity um, to give uh, a, a invitation because I think you are wanting to pull together your own episode and interview. So this is a shout out to all you women video insiders. And we know you're out there. So if you'd like to come on for either a regular podcast interview on the amazing things you're doing in streaming media, then we're very, very happy for you to reach out to either George, Mark, or myself so we can arrange an interview. And if some of you don't feel comfortable or are not uh, allowed to expose your trade secrets on the air, then we're thinking of also looking in to do a specific special episode on what it means to be a woman in the Video Insiders world. Thank you, Tamar, for joining us on this really engaging episode. Thanks so much for having me again. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.